0: Welcome to the 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today is a very special episode. We are doing our top 50 draft prospects for the 2022 100 draft. This is a list of the best 50 domestic players available in the draft. We've gone through and uh, we've ranked them all very precisely. We took a list of what I think it was about 100 domestic players we shortlisted. We knocked it down to 50. And now we have a full list where we've ranked them in order. And we'll basically go through, we'll go through all 50 players. You can find that on our Twitter page at Podcast 100. But we'll go through the biggest talking points. Uh, Charlie, before we get into this, uh, our top 50. Uh, it's, it's quite exciting that we've actually narrowed it down, I think.
1: Yeah, it wasn't easy. I think, Once we got past about number 20, it became incredibly tough because there's a lot of players who are kind of offering very similar levels of output, I think, just doing Mm. very different skills. So it's very hard to compare, you know, an average herft armour with an average opening bat. That's two very different skills. But I think we've got something that makes sense here. And it's worth mentioning that this will obviously change for individual teams in the draft because they'll be drafting on a needs basis rather than just the next best player in a lot of cases. But we've tried to be as objective as possible here. And this is what we think would be the top 50 in order of their value. Um, Your mileage may vary, of course, but we think this is pretty representative on the whole.
0: Yeah. I think what we've tried to do is, is kind of take the player's value in a kind of general sense kind of just separate it from need and look at who we think the best T20 and hundred players are basically. And obviously look, that's going to change because if you need a SEMA, you're going to pick a SEMA. And if you need a batter, you're going to pick a batter. So, so, you know, things will change. And I think there are some players that will get drafted higher than we have them purely because they're a more rare skill set, and we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, I am. Uh, I think these are, in our opinion, the top 50 domestic players available that haven't been retained. So, Let's go through them. Let's go through the big talking points. I think to start, there are two clear top players in this draft. They're both openers. They're both very explosive. Uh, They're Joe Clark and Tom Banton. We have Joe Clark at one, Tom Banton at two. I think they're the clear two players in the draft. I think you agree with me on that.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's much discussion to be had there, really. I would say out of the players that are available... The domestic players are available—they have to be the closest things to elite. There, their records in recent years have been really, really strong. They're such exciting players at the top of the order. They can both keep. If you don't get one, you're going to go for the other one. I think there's little doubt that if I want a domestic player, I'm going for Clark or Bant.
0: Yeah, I think Clark's the number one for me because Banton had a really rough 100 last year. And that, you know, he, he he was out of form, that's fine. But I think the consistency that Clark's shown uh, and the fact that he succeeded a lot of different grounds and doesn't have that taunt question hanging over him, I think makes him the number one player for me, uh, as much as I love Tom Banton. I think he's a fantastic player. I just think these two separate themselves out. I think they're really the two kind of elite T20 players on this list. Um, I think when you start going down, as you'll see, because teams retained their best players in the most part, apart from the Welsh Fire, you, you've seen that the best players out there have probably been retained. So past Clark and Banton, you've got some decent players coming after that. But you know, this isn't this isn't a draft full of. Domestic talent. I think these guys are the two clear ones. Oh, I've had this debate before on previous podcasts. Go, go check out our last couple of podcasts. We do talk about where Clark and Banton will go. we do that in quite a lot of detail, in fact, in our last podcast. So go check that out. But I think our sense is that Clark and Banton will probably go uh, in round one. And uh, I think they could go as early. Or they could go anywhere. Frankly, so we're we're interested to see how that happens. But let's move on from Banson and Clark, the two clear distinguished players in this class, and go to what we've kind of defined as the next best. These players I think are kind of in between. They're not the players you should be considering in round one, but I think could go in the round three to five range because they bring a lot of skill. And they're very different players, three different roles. You've got Tom Carla Cadmore who is kind of a flex batter in the fact that he can bat on the top of the middle order. Good against spin, can keep as well. You've got Jordan Thompson, um, who is really, really exciting left hand for me. Strike grade of 170 plus in his career. Didn't play much in the 100 last year, which I thought was a shame, but I really believe in him. And uh, he bowls as well, as the Hobart Hurricanes found out in the Big Bash, where they exclusively used him as a bowler rather than the batter, which is very silly. Uh, and then you've got Liam Dawson as well, uh, the left arm spinner who had a great PSL, useful player, provides some batting depth and can bowl across the innings, especially in the power play. So we feel they are our next best three, and they come in in that order Tom Collar three, Jordan Thompson, four, Liam Dawson, five. What do you make of the players, Charlie? Because I think Tom Collar will probably. I think he'll probably go first in our minds. But the other two players are fantastic as well. And they they offer things that are different to each team.
1: Well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's entirely needs-based. I think Tom Culloch-Cathmore will probably go first just because I don't think there are many backers out there available that offer the flexibility that he does. He can basically bat anywhere from one to six. He's very good against spin, which is also a pretty rare skill set in the domestic game, and he can keep. I think that makes him pretty valuable. I don't think he's an elite player necessarily, but he does cover a lot of bases for you in your team. And I think that flexibility makes him particularly valuable in this draft. Thompson as well. I really like Jordan Thompson. As you said, he hasn't had a great time of it lately, but he is now on on overseas franchises' radar, which I think shows the potential that he does have. He is an absolute monster with the bat when he gets going. And of course, he's left-handed, which makes him even more valuable. I don't think his bowling is amazing just yet, but it's useful to have. And I think he definitely has an upside there. I don't think he's the finished product just yet. I do think he's a role player, but in that role, he is especially good. And I think if you use him properly, he can bring so much value to your team. I would happily pay 100k for Jordan Thompson if he fell to me there. I do think he's worth it.
0: And I think with those players, this is the interesting, I think Cola Cadmore, because he is the next best batter to Clark and Banton, and we know that apparently the Rockets are after a domestic opening batter. They want Clark, he might not go there. The Phoenix, I think, theoretically should want one. I wonder if a team will reach for a Cole Cadmore because they don't get Clark or Banton. I think that's something to something to look out for. I think we're higher on John Thompson than everyone else, but... I think you you can take his bowling out of it. I think he can develop into a useful sixth bowling option. But a a batter that destructive who can bat from three to six, I think just adds a lot. He's left-handed. I just think he's a really classy player. And you look at the strike rate of 170 plus, you think he's probably just a slogger. But actually, he can play shots. He plays key innings. He stood up for his side in key moments before. I have a lot of... lot of, I just really like John Thompson. And yeah, I think 100K potentially would sue him as well. I think Liam Dawson's the interesting one in this class. I, I think he might go higher than people expect. And I imagine, Charles, I don't know if you agree with this. I imagine that 100 teams and cricket teams in general will value Liam Dawson more than maybe the fans do.
1: I think that's fair to say. Liam Dawson has a reputation of being kind of a boring player. And to a degree, I get it, right? He's a regulation left arm spinner. Doesn't really do a great deal with it in terms of turning it. He's not the most exciting batter either. He's a decent anchor player. He doesn't. He can hit a long ball if he wants to, but he doesn't do it particularly often. With all that in mind, he's not the most exciting player to watch. However, what he does do is those boring things incredibly well. And cricket, at the end of the day, is a numbers game. And Liam Dawson gives you very good numbers with the ball in particular. He is a very canny operator with a left arm spin. Yes, it's not particularly sexy, but he keeps it incredibly tight. He's very hard to get under. He's very hard hit for boundaries. And if you can't hit someone for boundaries, then you have a very good chance of winning the game. That's why he is a particularly useful player. There are some other left armers out there that do that job similarly as well. Tom Hartley is one at Manchester Originals, who I think is really good in a similar role. But in this draft, Liam Dawson is the standout in this role. And I think if you're looking for a player who can do that, then I think he's worth paying good money for. I really do think that despite the perceived boringness of what he brings to the table, he does it very well and he is valuable.
0: Yeah, and I think with Liam Dawson, he, he's just a nice balancing option for you because you can depend on him to bowl on the power play. You can depend on him to bowl in the mid-lovers. Left arm spin isn't sexy, but he will do a job and he'll do it well. And he adds some batting depth. And I think that's important. And you don't really want him batting four like Islamabad United had him, I don't think. But actually, I think in the PSL, he showed a little bit more intent early in his innings, which was nice. And I think... You know, if in the right situation he keeps that mindset with a bit more intent, he might actually be quite a useful batter for you. So I do think he can contribute if he can keep that intent level up early in the innings. So we really like Liam Dawson. I think the reason we have Cola Cameron Thompson above him is because of age. I think with Cola Cameron and Thompson, there's so much upside. I think what they could both be really is phenomenal. I think with Liam Dawson, you know what you're getting. And he's a nice option. He probably will go earlier than Thompson, I think. But I think for us, we, we would prefer taking Thompson. That's just our opinion. Let's move on to what we're describing as kind of tier two batters. This is kind of like the six to eight range. Um, we'll go through all the players in our top 10 before we kind of delve into other subjects. But the tier two batters kind of below Clark Banton and then Cola Campbell in this weird kind of
1: 1.5 area.
0: Um, we have Laurie Evans at six. Delray Rawlins at seven, and Ike Bain at eight. We found this very tough to rank these. We swapped it quite a lot, Charlie. We've ended up with Laurie at the top. Why is Laurie valuable to you? What does he bring to the 100 side?
1: Well, I guess similarly to Tom Curler-Cadmore, he is pretty flexible in terms of where he can bat. That is particularly crucial. He has opened the batting although I wouldn't choose to do it myself uh, and he came back anywhere from three to six really. He played some decent innings for Ivan last season. There was one really good one uh, where he he arguably a standard innings of the competition I think actually he played last season. Um, but on the whole I don't think he was used in a particularly clever way by them. He did very well in the big bash as well for Perth Scorchers. I think he has the recent form on his side. I'm not really a fan of recency bias but If we look at his numbers over the last couple of seasons, he has consistently been very good. I don't think he's necessarily the most explosive player you're going to find there. Indeed, I think you'll find more explosive players below him in our rankings. But I like the versatility that he brings. Uh, I like the experience that he has. He's played in more or less every single franchise that out there by the IPL at this point and done pretty well in them all. Decent player of spin, decent player of pace. I just think he covers a lot of bases. I don't think he's necessarily the most exciting player, but... I think when you're looking to plug gaps in your squad, and that's what a lot of teams will be doing there, given that you know a lot of them have the bare bones of, uh, of an eleven already mapped out, then the guy like Laurie Evans is quite useful because they can be plugged into whatever gap you may have available. So for that reason, I think he's an number six.
0: Yeah, I think he, he, did, he had a decent big bash as well, didn't he? So I think he's, he's kind of proven as a strong performer in white ball, and he has been for years. I think he's not the biggest strike rate guy, which I think puts some people off, but he wins your games. He just wins your games. And that is a really important thing to have. I think he slots nicely into most sides because you know, he's a dependable performer, not the most exciting, but dependable. That's in contrast to our number seven, Delray Rawlins, who is an incredibly exciting performer just not consistent in any sense of the world. We love Del Rey, there's a reason we have him ahead of Ian Cobain but he's just not consistent, Charlie, I think that makes him a very tough player to rank
1: It is. What he could be is a really superb hitter, so destructive when he's at his best. What he has been in recent years is a vibes player, a little bit <laughs> And and look I think there are some teams out there that have room for a vibes player, but I think we're ranking him at seven based on what he could be. And I think we all know what he could be. Mm. Uh, I think he might have played one game last season for Seven Braves. The very first one didn't really play again. Um, but I think there's definitely a team that can find a home for Delray Rawlins. I think if he starts into a more intent base side, then by all means, he has a lot of potential to go far. And he offers you a very useful part-time player farm option as well. He's not amazing, but I'd happily chuck it to him for five 10 balls and he would do a decent job there. And I think that's why he is that bit more valuable than Cobain currently. Also, if he's young as well. You have that upside to him. But on the whole, I love Delray. And I think if he can start being more consistent, he is a great option for you.
0: Yeah. And I think for some teams, a player like Delray can be really valuable. I look at the Manchester Originals on that old Trafford track, having a guy who can go after it's important. I look at the Trent Rockets, who don't really have an intentful left hander in the side. Uh, they have Tom Moores, but I'm not sure he's going to get into that 11. He might be an option there, and then you can offer some bowling as well. I think there are plenty of sides who would be interested in him. And I just think when you have the basis of a side there already, going and getting an intent guy who can you know, bat four to six and offer something might be important. Because I think what I saw with the Laurie Evans in the Overland Invincible side was it just didn't quite fit. And maybe you get more value out of having a guy like Delray in that role, who you can use in certain circumstances, can be that intent guy, great fielder as well. Um, I I just think that is valuable. So I I think we probably still have Laurie ahead of him, but I think Delray, for me, is exciting. As you look at that strike rate, you look at the ability he has to take a game away from teams. I just think he fits better for these sides. Whereas Ian Cobain, who's more of a top-order player... We, we like Ian, he's had a really good time of it, good big bash, but a little bit of recency bias there. He's been very good. He had a really good T20 blast in 2020, like a phenomenal one. Really good big bash. But if you look at what the teams have, is he going to really fit into what they want to do? London Spirit, they already have Crawley and Maxwell and Lawrence and you know, the right hands at the top of the order, Adam Rossington as well. Welsh Fire already have Johnny Bairstow up there. Um, the originals have Butler and Salt. Superchargers have Live, Duplassie. Invincibles have Roy and Jax. Rockets have a load of top-order players. Hales, Milan, Root. You, Smead, Moeen, Liam for the Phoenix. It just every single side has those top-order options kind of sorted. And if they would like a top-order option, they'd probably want it to be a left-hander. And so I think that kind of curtails Cobain's value a little bit.
1: And this is kind of strange, but I feel like he is quite versatile in that he can play in a lot of different ways. But I think that's almost his weakness. I don't think he's quite the master of any of those ways he can play. So if you want an aggressive batter, you're probably going to go for Delray Rawlings. If you want someone who can be a bit more of an anchor, Uh, you're probably going to go for someone like Laurie Evans, maybe. Cobain isn't as attacking or as good an anchor as either of those. He can do both pretty well. But I don't think he does either one of them as well, if that makes sense. And so I think he kind of falls through the cracks a little bit there. However, he is pretty dynamic. He has had a very good couple of years. And I do think that if he does find the right home, he'll be very useful for them. The only question is, I don't know where that is just yet.
0: Yeah. I think that's the thing. We love Ian Cabello. Like he's in our top 10 for a reason. I think he's a really class player. He's having a great late career. He's 35. And he has really come into his own in the last couple of years. I think that's so impressive. So we're a big fan. It's just how do you fit him into a side? And so I think that might leave him kind of falling a little bit. But for us, that's not falling that far. I think for us, that's probably falling into what? The kind of round six, round seven range, potentially. So... You know, maybe higher, maybe higher. Maybe,
1: it, could, it could be.
0: It could be. That's the thing that I think is tough for us to, to like put there. Because I think he, you probably want to play Cabane top in the middle of the order for me. I don't think he's like quite the I don't think using him as a finisher is quite what you want when there are other options available. I think that's the thing. It's so tough to like to work out what his draft stock is, was it's tough to fit him into these hundred sides. And um, so he, he could go slightly later than we think. He could go slightly earlier than we think. But he's a he's a class player and I think he's 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 definitely worth a mid draft pick in my opinion. because at the very least you're getting an experienced guys come into his own recently who, who offers a lot, but I think maybe if you're the Welsh fire and, um, you know, you're not quite ready to compete now or you're a side with lots of experience already who want to invest in a younger player like the Rockets, that's why you look at Delroy Rawlins, in my opinion. Let's move on to our 9 and 10, and then when we get out of the top 10, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of skim through it a lot more. But, but our players at 9 and 10 are Danny Briggs and Daniel Moriarty, the two slow left armors. We have Briggs at nine and Moriarty at 10. I think I would slightly prefer Moriarty, I'd say, but I think we ended up putting Briggs on top because I think you back his experience and we also know that he can bowl in the power play and that's more of a sure thing. So it's close, but two good players. I think the question is, how high do they actually go? Because they might be the nine and 10th players, but how many teams want a slow left armour? That's the question.
1: Yeah, I think this is the thing we've seen in the last couple of drafts that teams have typically gone overseas for their spinners. Uh, They go overseas for a leg spinner. Um, The role of side-left armour isn't particularly exciting or sexy, but they can turn the ball away from the right-hander, which is a very useful skill set. I don't know if it's the most valuable skill set. Probably isn't, if we're being honest. But I think Briggs and Moriarty both have a role to play for a 100 team. I don't think there's any question about that. Briggs didn't really play much last season. Um, and I, I guess when you're a team like the Southern Brave, who certainly in a way they did, it was natural that they didn't really need a player like that anymore. And I think it's, you know, telling that he's been let go. But that's not an indictment on his skills. I think he does offer you an incredibly dependable option with the ball. Um, he's Is he the leader we could take in the Blast history? I think yeah, he is. he is the
0: leader we could take yeah. in the Blast history. And you also. so sneakerly what when he actually played had a decent enough hundred He, he bowled well i thought
1: yeah he did he did he's a very reliable option You don't take that many wickets in the blast for no reason he is a really decent player is he exciting probably not but if you're looking for a left armor and dawson's not in the mix anymore briggs will absolutely do that job for you incredibly well so, yeah, for me, no question about it, he's a valuable player. Same with Moriarty. I think Moriarty has a lot more upside at this point. I agree with you, I'd probably pick Moriarty over Briggs because of that. But I think, I'm think i thinking in terms of what teams will do, mm. and I think they'll probably leave Briggs just because of that experience. But we, we'll see. We shall see. This is all very subjective at this point.
0: Yeah, I do think Moriarty currently is probably a one-phase player in terms of the middle overs. But I think you look at his record at Surrey, it's just so good. He, he, Daniel Moriarty has had a really fantastic young career. and I think when you, you know, I, I think in my opinion, he's the number one spinner in Red Bull as well for, for, uh, for, for sorry. Now I don't think uh, Amar Verdi should get early season games. I think should it should go to Daniel Moriarty. I'm that big a fan. But, you know, you look at what his record has been in the blast. He's played two seasons, economy rate, you know, under seven for both of them. He's t- taken 28 wickets in, I think, 24 innings. He's just very consistent. And my favourite thing, he's played what, 24, 25 games at this point. He's only bowled five whites. He's consistent. He's tight. He takes wickets. He doesn't go for runs. And you just look at you know what he's done against decent batting sides, and he's consistently bowled well. He, you know He's done well against Gloucestershire, Kent, Glamorgan's a different thing, but he's very tight against them. But consistently across his career, he just doesn't go for many runs. In fact, in the Blast last year, he went for more than eight and over twice. He's just, I think he's just a remarkable player. I just think the question is, how much do you value a better slow left armour than a potentially more explosive leg spinner? That's where the debate comes into me is where does, you know, where does Moriarty actually go? Because he's a leg spinner, do you draft Luke Holman higher? Do you look at Freddie Heldrake and see Jake Linter potentially and go him over Daniel Moriarty? I think that's the question for a lot of sides. So where does Moriarty actually get drafted? Uh, I think that's it's definitely something to think about because I think we've seen that Danny Briggs, Daniel Moriarty, in our mock draft, have, have fallen to that kind of round nine, round ten range. Where well, other players lower in our rankings have jumped ahead because of, I guess, that perceived positional value?
1: Yeah, I do think it's such a needs-based thing. And I think because of that, it's quite difficult to quantifiably say that this player is going to go above this player because we don't know what the teams are thinking. We don't know what they've decided they need. I think in terms of what we know players bring to the table, brings and majority probably do go ahead of, for example, a Luke Holman, just because I think they've, got a better record. They've done it more and done it better. But, if I'm picking a team and I have decide I want a leg spin, then I'm probably going to lean, lean towards Holman or Heldreit or, or Landham just because I, I think that they offer something different, even if their record isn't necessarily as great as Briggs and Moriarty. So, there's a real debate to be had there. We don't have the answer. We're just providing you the questions, I guess. But, um, I, I think it's an interesting one. I'm really curious to see what teams do here because it could have quite a big impact on the way these teams go, particularly things as like squad options who come into the team if you know an important player gets injured or is left out. I do think these kind of fringe players could be quite important to shaping a team's season. So I'm really curious to see how it goes.
0: Yeah, I'm curious just to see how much that positional value or positional scarcity even impacts them. Because i tell you what I think will cause their slide and something that I think we should probably consider is that you can get a decent left-arm spinner really late in the draft. That I'll just go through other left-arm spinners in our top 50. You've got Mark Watt. He's down at 18. You've got Rolof van der Merwe at 27. You've got Tom Smith of Gloucestershire at 37. You've got Liam Travaskis down there at 45. There are plenty of good left-arm spinners out there. And I wonder if teams look at this and they look at the scarcity of other positions for example SEMA, and think well we can get a decent left arm spinner later if he's going to be a complementary piece so why would we spend big on Briggs and Moriarty when we can maybe get a what or a van der Merwe later that's an interesting discussion for me and that brings us on to move outside of our top 10 and go to I think a discussion into where rank ranking this because at 11 we have our top Seema rank he's Pat Brown and at 15, we have our second seamer. might surprise people, Chris Wood of Hampshire, who has a good T20 record over the years, had a decent 100 with the London Spirit. These are our top two seamers, in my opinion, Charlie. I think they're the top two guys relatively clearly. We've got other guys, and we'll come on to our kind of second wave of seamers later. But I think when you look at how much of an issue getting a quality seamer is in this... Yeah, in this draft, you look at the pool of talent. You know, we do, you don't, you just don't get many really high quality T twenty seamers in England. I wonder if Pat Brown and Chris Wood, because of that, will go go ahead of the left arms we just talked about, Moriarty and Briggs.
1: I think they will. I think they definitely will. Certainly above Briggs and Moriarty, potentially above Cobain and Rawlins as well. I just think that most of the, the very good English seamers have already retained. So you, if you need to fill that hole in the squad, you have to go early because there just aren't that many great seamers available. So the likes of Brown and Wood may well go earlier than we expect just to fill those gaps.
0: Yeah, and I think the, the thing that teams will think about is because if they have a massive gaping hole at seamer, I don't think you can wait to the later rounds like you can with a slow left arm to get one. Because if you wait to the later rounds, you're probably getting a player who just isn't good enough. Uh, and I think that's, a, that's a, an issue that has plagued teams last year. The Trent Rockets had real issues with their second and third seamers. Tim Manderhookton had a really bad season, bless him. Really bad. He you know, he was a big reason why they couldn't go over the hump because he, he was just too expensive. Going back to the Birmingham Phoenix, Dylan Pennington, Pat Brown struggled in the 100 last year. We still have Pat Brown up there and, and the reason being we have Pat Brown at 11 is because you know it wasn't that long ago that he was playing for England and was one of the best bowlers in the country. So, for us, we look at that, we don't want to take recency bias in too much. We think he can come back and we can be that bowler again. Obviously, he's still coming back from injury. Also, he goes this season. I think it's tough to comprehend, but that's the reason we have him at 11 still. That's why I think, you know, teams are going to look into Pat Brown with the upside and look into Chris Wood with that dependability, that left arm option, because that's such, that was such, a, such an Achilles heel for so many teams. You kind of have to go after it and fix it. And that's why, in a lot of our latest mock drafts, we go SEMA, overseas SEMA for the Rockets and the Phoenix, even though they have Adam Miller and Marchant DeLango already there. We go that because it's such a weakness of their side and they need to fix it and there's not many options out there. So I think it's a it, it's a serious issue for TIS because if you have a SEMA hole, you either have to go get that elite SEMA, and I don't think teams should be afraid to double down on elites overseas SEMAs. So don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think you need to spread your overseas across the side necessarily. I think you kind of need to double down because these are the best options. It's Chris Wood, who is fine, he's a perfectly decent player, but you know he's not particularly great at death necessarily. Uh, he's more of a role player. And Pat Brown, who hasn't been good the last couple of seasons, so this is the issue you get yourself into if you leave yourself in that hole. Suddenly, you kind of these are the best two options available, and then suddenly we'll look into the next best players because I, I, it just isn't a particularly nice market to be working in.
1: No, I think it's interesting that you'll probably see the likes of Brown and Wood get pay rises from last season despite the fact that they've both been released Mm. because the the nature of this particular draft dynamics dictate that, as we've said, you're going to have to overpay for certain players to fill those holes. If there isn't a particularly deep supply of them available, then it is worth going earlier for them. So while on paper it might seem quite weird that Pat Brown earns himself a pay rise despite being released for not performing especially well, it does actually make sense in the dynamics of this draft just because of the scarcity of that skill set available. So it springs around about a little bit. I can understand why you would be put off going down that road, but I just think it's the way to go, as stupid as it may appear on paper.
0: Yeah, and I think teams are going to have to reach. They are going to have to reach because they've put themselves in that position. and In a sense, that's kind of their fault for not picking good seamers the first time round and putting themselves in that position. That's just a lay of the land. I think the reason we talk about Brown and we're going early is because I think when you get into the next phase, and that's what we're going to move into next, is kind of value seamers. They are nice players, interesting players. I think players with upside and potential and intrigue, but they're not fully dependable, consistent. Put them in your side and they're going to be stars players. Yeah. That's where it gets complicated. So We've got four seamers to highlight in this next kind of range. We've got Matt Milnes at 19, Dylan Pennington at 21, Scott Curry of Hampshire at 22, and Gus Atkinson of Surrey at number 30. They're all guys who I can see in different lights I'm excited about. Matt Milnes kind of looked a bit like Dale Stane, so I haven't got excited, but he didn't actually bowl that well in the 100 last year, I thought. Dylan Pennington is an excellent power play bowler. Just can't do anything else. Uh, Scott Curry had a good season for Hampshire last year. I actually played in a game with him. Um, Paul pool, pool Cricket, uh, second 11, I made a, a two-ball duck. Uh, he bowled about, I reckon, about 65 miles an hour back then, but he was basically hitting the top of off every time. He's, he's very good. But now he's put on 20 miles an hour pace and he's a quality player. Uh, he looks interesting. And you've got Gus Atkinson of Surrey. He has a very weird action. He, do you know when you play a video game, I know if you, we played Don Bradman together when we lived together, Charlie. But you know those bowlers who kind of just like on the game just stop in their delivery stride? It kind of like pauses. And then it comes down at exactly the same pace as everything else. Gus Atkinson is what, bowling mid-80s, low 80s. But he looks like he's bowling 90 miles an hour because everyone has just no idea when the ball's coming out of his action. It's very weird. Anyway, those guys all have interesting traits but I'm not sure you want to put them in your 11 straight away because they're either unproven or have weaknesses. And I think that's kind of the trouble with this class in a sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't think you'd want to be paying huge money for any of these guys. I think they're all guys you can afford to wait on a little bit. As you say, none of them are the finished product. And ideally, I don't think any of these will be starting your best first choice 11. However in the situation you're in, you're probably going to need backup seamers. You're probably going to need guys who can come in and you can rely on them to do a job in a particular role. And I think all these do give you that. I would say that Milnes and Curry are the most flexible of the lot here. I think those are the ones that cover the most bases. Bennington is, if you're looking for a power play option, you go for him. Because he is so good there. And Phoenix last year against Trent Rockets, he was superb. He was really good in the power play in that Trent Rockets game. Uh, he crammed up Alex Hales, got him out completely, Darcy Short didn't have a clue, did really well in that game. And in any other phase of the game, he really struggled, particularly yeah. in the final against Southern Brave, which I mean it was a big part of why I lost that game, unfortunately, because yeah. Tim David's Ross he just got after him and Pat Brown and it was it was brutal to watch. Yes. But you know, I, I digress. The point is if you're fighting Dylan Paddington, you know that he'll do a really good job in that one phase of the game. You can use him as a role player and he will do you that job. Um I think, again, in what order you rank these guys is needs-based, as a lot of our picks are. It's entirely based on what your team is going to need. If you've got a really gun-powerful body inside already, you probably wouldn't go for Pennington. But if you haven't, you go for him. It's that kind of mentality, I think, that will dictate a lot of picks at the draft. But these are all four bowlers that will bring you decent value as a seamer. They're not amazing, but they're useful.
0: Yeah, and they're useful in those late rounds, if you have a seam attack sorted already, I think if you ask them to step in, like maybe a, you know, an originals might, they, they're they going to have some problems, I think. And I look at all of these players and I, I see potential. We, we've seen Scott Curry had a great 2021 blast. Still unproven at the next level. We haven't seen much more than that. Gus Atkinson really intrigues me for the options. He's just very awkward to face. I just, you know, he, he's returns haven't been that great in the blast yet. And I'm not totally convinced, but I I think he can be, I, I do think he can develop into a player. It's just, these guys are all developmental guys. You want to take swings on late in the draft. You probably want to be taking them in like rounds 11 to 14, take a swing, see how they go. Whereas instead, you know, teams are going to be depending on them to start straight away. I think that's where you get into issues because really these guys should be on the bench. Coming in if necessary, and guys you look at in the future. I think that's where teams are going to struggle because again, we we look at teams who need a seamer. You know, if the Trent Rockets, for example, play one of these guys, I think they'd struggle. If the superchargers maybe were to bring in one of these guys rather than overseas seamer, that's not gonna go well for them. I, I, I just think that this is an awkward phase where these are the next best guys, but the fact that they are three to six. In the domestic seam rankings, really shows the kind of lack of depth and/or quality in the seam class as much as we like all of the players individually. So, interested to see where they go. I do hope that teams don't reach for overseas seamers. I think they—they they, what they really need to do is go and get key overseas ones, then take these guys later, let them develop. And maybe next year when you're looking to release an overseas SEMA, you see what you, you've had them around for a year and you can see what they're like. So, yeah, it's a interesting class to go through. Uh, if you want to see our full top 50, we're not going to go through every player. You can find it at Podcast 100 on Twitter. We've got graphics up there with all of the players there. You can see our rankings and there's a few players that we, we haven't mentioned and won't mention that you'll see up there. Uh, there's some shocking names. I think Luke Holman would surprise people at 14. I think that might surprise people. Freddie Heldryke at 20, I think would surprise people. And I think that's kind of where I want to go next is kind of guys who are less proven, but have a lot of positional value. I think this is something we talked about with Briggs and Moriarty. I think proven, strong performers, you know, out there who are playing in a position of slow left, slow left armor, which isn't really as valuable to teams. But then there are guys in our top 50, Heldreich at 20, Archie Venom at 25, and Dan Douthwaite at 26, who fill roles that are really valuable. People might look at Heldreich as the next, Greg Linter. Archie Denham's a really young and exciting leg spinner. And Dan Douthwaite is a very powerful death hitter, who I think has a lot of upside. His bowling probably isn't what you want. You don't want to use him as a, a proper bowler, maybe in the kind of Ben Cutting mold of all-rounders. You probably don't want to depend on him as your fifth bowler or as a death option, but he's a really interesting hitter. And I'm so excited, Charlie, to see where these guys go because you might say, well, Freddie Heldrock isn't as proven as an Adam Hose or Rolf Roloff and a or whatever. But actually, when you when you look at the upside that he brings, the upside that Archer Lennon and Dan Dalfoy brings – Whilst they're 20, 25, 26 on a board, I think they could go much higher and it's interesting to see where teams will value them.
1: It's the thing, if you want something totally different in your bowling attack, Freddie Heldrake is probably the most exciting player on this board. Yes, he's at 20, but he may well go high if you want that X-factor bowler. I know he hasn't played a great deal for North yet, but he's a left-arm leg spinner. You know, these players they do not grow on trees. There are not many out there. I think it's really exciting that we have a guy like Freddie Heldreich in the mix and I wouldn't be surprised if someone goes earlier for him than you might imagine. Similarly, with Lennon as well. Again, leg spinners don't grow on trees, do they? And he is pretty good. He had a very good season for Sussex last season in the blast. He's incredibly young as well. He's only going to get so much better. If you invest in someone like Lennon, take him under your wing, get him in early, the sky is the limit. And Dalfway is a guy I really like. I, he is similar, I suppose, to Thompson, I guess. It's really the only rival you have available in that kind of mold as a big hitter who can bowl a bit of seam. But he's very good at doing it. I know it's an old cliche, but he does hit the ball in quite unusual areas. I hate saying that, but it's true. <laughs> he does. He hits a long ball in unusual parts of the ground. He is very valuable. He hits a lot of sixes. And let's face it, John, a huge hit the players out there who hit as many sixes as he can do. I think if you give him a chance, he will go well for you. Does he start in every team? Maybe not, but if you want to strengthen that batting lineup by having an absolute beast, an enforcer coming in at number six, then Dan Dalton is a very good guy to have in that role. So I think these guys, we've got them kind of mid-table, but again, I wouldn't be surprised if they co-hire just because what they bring to the table is quite unusual, and those unusual skill sets are valuable.
0: Yeah, and I think there are certain teams that need it. So I think, I mean, look, for example, the Brave have David and Whiteley. They certainly don't. The Originals have Jamie Overton for that role. They don't. But the Welsh Fire could do with a power hitter in the middle order. I think the Spirit could do with a finisher. I think there are plenty of teams who could need what Dan Dalthway wants. And look, I, I think we will unashamedly say that behind his agent and his mother, we are probably the biggest Dan Delthwaite fans in the world. But I, I think we... I think when you look at him, he is just a really intriguing guy who can play beginnings. He's proven he can play match-winning things. He just looks like a player who is meant to be a good hitter. He's not one of those players who kind of plays those awkward 20-off-10s where he's hacking it. He looks like he can become that dominating player. I think you, you, you watch him play and you look at what he's done, you look at some of his stats. I think there's intrigue there. And I think there are certain positions where you look at him late in the draft and you think, okay, let's pick him up and develop him. I think that's a similar thing to Lennon. Let's pick him up, develop him, see where we're at with the year. That's what you want with your late draft picks. I think Freddie Heldryke's the interesting thing. Is he the next Jake Linter? Will teams go chase him, the next Jake Lintert? I'm interested by that. And I think Heldreich might go relatively early. He's had good returns to the vast, just not particularly proven. So, interested in that. As I said, if you want to check out the rest of our Top 50, head over to our Twitter page, at Podcast 100, because we're going to skip through quite a lot of players now. We've only got a couple more things we really want to touch on, and there's quite a few names from this kind of 27 to 35 range, Ed Pollock, Aaron Lilly, Luke Fletcher, that we'll skip over, because I think there's another thing that I want to talk about. And it's kind of similar to Archie Landam in a sense. A similar, it's a similar discussion, I think, it's those young guns who might come out of nowhere and be worth developing. The guys I think about and we've put here are Jacob Bethel at 36 and Rehan Ahmed at 49. Jacob Bethel has played a handful of professional games. Rehan Ahmed has never played a professional T20 previously, but we saw what they did at the under 19 World Cup. We see the value they bring, and we feel like they are worth their potential, their upside is worth a berth in the top 50. I don't think either of us would be desperate to put them in our sides and to draft them, but I think they are worth consideration. So what is it about Bethel first, Charlie, that makes us put him at 36?
1: It's the intent that he offers, really. He's an aggressive batter. He comes at it hard. And that's such a valuable asset. I look at teams in the hundred. I see Birmingham Phoenix, for example, a team who last season invested in young players who are full of intent, like Will Smith and Chris Benjamin, and look how well they did. So I can see a pattern for guys like Jacob Betfall to come through and make a name for themselves in a similar way. You know, There's definitely some teams out there that could do far worse and take a look at a young guy who is aggressive with the bat. This is not a hard one to work out as far as I'm concerned. You look at Gerald Brevis, right? Mm. Gerald Brevis went for more money in the IPL than I think we probably would have paid for him but it clearly shows you that there are high quality T20 teams out there willing to pay good money and invest in a young T20 batter who is aggressive and has lots of intent so there is kind of there's previous for this and I can see Bethel I don't think he'll go nearly you know in the same kind of money bracket as, as your Brevist, in speaking but I can definitely see a Birmingham Phoenix taking a punt on it. No question about it.
0: Yeah, and if it's a late pick, again, you just want to try something, see what he can develop into. I guess, why not? I think it is a punt because his returns for the Birmingham Bears just haven't been good in any sense yet. I think you probably want to see him play some professional cricket first. But, hey, look, this top 50, do you really want to take... A runner, I don't know, and Sam Hayne, David Lloyd, and Alex Blake. When you have other options up there, and there are probably better players you've retained already, when you could have a go at Jacob Bethel and see what he could develop into. Hey, get that young player at that low price bracket. You could probably retain them there for a couple of years. We've seen that with Will Smead, for example, who's been paid... Next to nothing by the Phoenix. You you have the upside of getting a really high quality player on the cheap for two or three years. I think that that is really something that teams can tap into. The other guy, Leicester Lad Rehan Ahmed. He didn't. He was fine in the Royal London 50 over tournament last year. He was he's all right. He, I don't think he'd blow anyone away. He looks like a talented prospect. Still got a way to go. He um, hasn't played a professional T20 yet. But you just look at what he can offer. Both so well in the Under-19 World Cup, he turns his, his googly a ridiculous amount. And we talk about rarity in terms of you know positions and players. There is nothing more valuable than a leg spinner who can really rip it and who has potential. And again, there's a reason he's 49 on our board, is he's not played professional T20 yet. And we've not quite seen him really, we, 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 he's not proven. No, There's a reason he's 49 on our board. It's because he hasn't played a professional T20 yet. He's not proven yet. But yeah, we probably wouldn't draft him. But He's in the consideration for our top 50 because he's such a rare prospect. You don't get many players like that. And you've seen the viral clips of him already, I imagine, of, of beating players with his massive googly. And I just think he looks like an impact player. And the fact that England under 19 used him as their strike bowler. I think excites me. So he's worth consideration at the very least. And I'm excited to see what Leicestershire do with him this year.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm very excited by Rahman, And I don't think you go very higher from think He's definitely a, you know, last couple of rounds pick, without a doubt. But there aren't that many leg spinners out there who can turn the ball like he does. And yeah, he's not played a professional for any. But Chris Benjamin had played like one. And look how well he did. I'm not saying, you know, he's gonna necessarily make the exact same impact straight away, but I think he has the potential to be a gun X-Factor bowler for you. And when you have that kind of skill set at such a young age, you've got to invest in that talent because like you say, you retain them year after year after year, they're going to get better and better. I think if you don't get in there early, someone else is going to step up for more money and you've lost them. You're never going to get a chance to get that player back again. So, I think it's worth going in early, um, as in going in early in their careers rather than going in early yeah. the draft board for these players. I just think you have so much potential to pick up tomorrow's superstar. And why wouldn't you do that if it's there? And given the choice of Rahan Ahmad or Don Bess, you know, Don Bess is probably a decent off-spinner. He's probably more proven at this stage than Rahan Ahmed. I mean, definitely he's more proven. But when you look at what the ceiling of these players could be, Rahan Ahmed in T20 cricket has so much of a higher ceiling than best. So I think it's worth going down that route rather than the proven solid route. You have to go down the route of, I'm going to take a punt on this guy who could be amazing.
0: Yeah, and I think the thing is, we we don't consider him as one of the best 26 players to be drafted yet. But I think his value is interesting to a team, for example, like the Southern Brave. The Southern Brave have... Zero holes. They're going to go get a left arm spinner somewhere. Um, at some point, they're going to go get Quinton DeCock in the first round. They'll probably get an, another batter in somewhere, maybe another seaman. But with their last pick in round 14, when you have such a complete side, when you are so dominant, they can take a swing. There's nothing stopping them taking a swing. And I think, you know, even if Ranoa hasn't played a professional T20 game yet, Sonny Baker didn't last year. And he was picked up by the Rockets, I believe, um, as a backup player. I, I think you, you can just take a swing. So I think if you are a Southern Brave, this puts you in an exciting position because you have all you need sorted. Why not take a swing on Rehan Ahmed? He could be an incredible player. He could be a top level player and you could get him in your organization early. Remember in 2019, that's what I did with George Garten. Hadn't played a T20, what, 18 months at that point? Snapped him up, one of the stars of the tournament last year. And they can do a similar thing. They have that flexibility now. Doyle Brevis, by the way, who did he go to? Mumbai Indians. Who's the coach of yeah. in Mumbai Indians? Mahela J. Wardner is a very canny coach, two games into the tournament, but he knows <laughs> how to build a squad as well. And I think that's something that they should look into. And look, maybe that picks Archie Lennon, potentially, because there's the Southern Brave connection with Sussex. And I think that would make sense. He'd feel comfortable there him last year. So that would make sense as well. But that kind of player... Is an issue. And I think that's kind of why I'm frustrated by a side like the Welsh Fire, who, when you look at their open draft picks, filled up a lot of their late slots with players like Deploy, Higgins, Critchley, Cobb, when maybe rather than just kind of picking up those players as solid squad options, they could go for a high-end player. Maybe in round 13 they do. So I think that's an interesting discussion to have. And I I I'm excited to see which team takes a run at one of those high-end, unproven guys, maybe like a Lennon, a Heldreich, or even a Bethel and Ahmed. So there we are. That's pretty much it. We've got one more player to go through. As I said, if you want to find out everything, our top 50 is on our podcast Twitter page, at Podcast 100. And now we come to the 50th player on our board. Look, when you get to number 50 of our top 50, and there's only 25, 26 domestic slots in the draft available – We're not going to draft this guy, but we really wanted to mention him because we've watched him bowl, and we think there's a lot of potential there. It's Somerset's Ollie Sale. Now, you might exclaim, Ed, Charlie, what on earth are you talking about? Ollie Sale has been injured the whole of his career. He didn't play any T20 last year, and when he's played T20, his economy rate is uh, 10.43. Probably not looking particularly good, but... The reason that I've been championing Ollie Sale and the reason we've put him in is when we talk about raw traits, he's 26. I know it's a little bit old, but he bowls quick, like genuinely quick. Bowls high 80s, I think. He can get into that. He has really good slow balls that deceive batters. He has the potential to hurry players up. He takes wickets. Bowls a lot of taunts, which I don't think it's helped his economy rate. I think there is the potential here, if Ollie Sell can avoid injury, to really break out over the next couple of years and develop into something really special. I'm not going to draft him. He's in the top 50, because I just think he's got a load of upside, and I wanted to include him, because I think he's a player that I just wanted to stick out there as a guy who could break out this year on the way back from injury. I just think there's a lot of untapped potential there. And again, not drafting him now. Record isn't particularly great. I think a lot of the statsy people will look at us and think we're idiots. But I think there's a lot there with Ollie Sell. And I think he's a guy who could potentially break out in the blast this year. And don't be surprised if in the next couple of years, if he avoids injury, he finds his way to the 100.
1: Yeah, I think we've always seen glimpses of what he can do. Whether or not he's been able to put them together enough is another question. His stats say he probably hasn't. Uh, he's been unlucky with injury as well, which hasn't helped. And as you said, Taunton is a notoriously tough place to bowl sometimes so that does have an impact on his record but we've we've spoken about scarcity of certain skill sets quite a lot during this episode and I think the most obvious place in the domestic game where there is a scarcity of a skill set is in really good seamers who can bowl quick there just aren't that many at all Ollie Sale despite his mixed record can do that now as I said he hasn't always put it together and that is definitely a big question mark against his name currently and that is why he won't get picked up in his draft he won't let's be honest he won't but when you look at what he can do and i would urge anyone who's unfamiliar with sound to go on go on youtube try and dig out some pilots of him it's a bit tough we tried to do this recently and there aren't too many out there but what is there gives you a very good look into what his raw skills are and his raw skills are genuinely very exciting i think that in years to come not now but in years to come, if he remains fit, I believe he's in the, the trail back to injury, from injury now and he should be ready to play, I think, for the upcoming last season. Mm. If he gets a regular run in the side, there's no question for me that he will show what he's about. His record will improve. And people will start to think, this Oli Sale guy is pretty good. I think that's very important, clearly. And I am not for one second suggesting that We should ignore the stats, right? Stats give you a great look into what a player is all about. They are invaluable. But they don't always give you the full picture. What stats don't necessarily show you is something that you can gain from the old fashioned eye test, which is obviously flawed, right? The eye test can be very flawed. And I'm not for one second suggesting that you should just look at a player and be able to say he's good or he's not very good. You can't do that. But if you combine the two together, you can kind of get a fuller picture of what a player can offer you. And Rolly sale, you can just tell that he has a nice action. You can tell that he's quick and you can tell that he gets bounce and good slower balls. That isn't something that a lot of players with better stats have got. I just think that it allows you to tap into some of the upside that you might miss just going on a player's basic stats. And when you look at Sal Bowl, you can get that complete picture. And I do think that you can use that to tap into something that other teams aren't going to see. I think in a draft, you're always looking to find the bargain that other teams haven't necessarily spotted. You're looking to find a gem that may well blossom into being a really high-quality player in years to come. I'm not saying it's Sal yet, but I'm saying in a year or 2 down the line, that may well be him. Yeah, I think,
0: I think this is the thing with sale and stats-based selections is that you don't have to be quick and tall and have brilliant slow balls to be really good. Matty Potts is a good wide ball operator. He doesn't look fantastic, but he's a really good one. So stats can tell you a lot about a bowler and you don't have to be quick and tall and all of these things to be a high-end player, but it helps. Like It doesn't automatically make him a better bowler than anyone who bowls at a lesser pace uh, and has a better record. But what it shows to me is he has the upside to be a really special player, a really good player. And again, we wouldn't draft him this year. I don't think either of us would. Obviously, you've got to see him play. But when the wildcard picks come around, maybe when next year's draft comes around, he interests me because, again, I urge you to look him up. He hits batters with pace. He has deceptive slow balls. And if he can get past all of those injuries, I think it's really intriguing. So just an interesting discussion to have. And I think... Now, we we love our stats here, but I do think it's an interesting opportunity to maybe look at guys and watch guys who don't have that high-end statistical stuff there, but you can actually go and watch them and think, hey, that guy could be really special. Similar thing with Beth and Ahmed. Go watch them, see their potential. I think that's something that sides should look at. So I don't think any of those three will get drafted. I don't think I, I wouldn't touch Oli Stale with a barge pole at this point, given his injury record. But in the future, he's just a player that I wanted to highlight and we wanted to highlight because we really like him. So there we are. That's our top 50. If you want to go see the full list, it's full of really intriguing names. We can go through all of them. Joe Denley, number 13. Our boy Luke Holman, number 14. Yeah, there's, there's lots of interesting discussions to have there. Won't have the time to do all of it because, you know, this would be a three or four-hour podcast to go through every name. But if you want to go check out our top 50... Uh, it's at podcast 100 on twitter if you want to give us abuse it's also at podcast 100 on twitter but that's all we have for now we'll have a final mock draft coming up before the 100 draft itself The 100 drafts now on the 5th of april so we will have a final mock draft coming soon and we'll also have reaction coming out of the draft as well so make sure to stay tuned to us here on the 100 podcast and thank you very much for listening we'll see you very soon